Hey, everybody, Nick Espinoza, your chief security fanatic here. And this week's deep dive actually is going to be absolutely fascinating. You are not going to want to miss this. And I saw this guy here sitting next to me, or I guess virtually next to me here. And and, and I just, I, I couldn't stop listening. It was absolutely amazing. So with that, I'm going to start with a question for you, the audience. Where were you on 9-11? Now, if you're like most of us here, you know, in the world, you remember 9-11. If you were alive or old enough to remember 9-11, you know exactly what you were doing. I happened to be in the shower listening to the radio, WLS in Chicago, when after the first plane had hit, and I thought to myself, what on earth happened in Israel today? And then the guy screaming on the radio and the second plane hit, and here we are. But my guest today has a very, very specific very specific experience with 9-11 that most of us in the world will never have. And so I am talking today to Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, U.S. Marine Corps retired, and his story is absolutely fantastic. Now, he's the author of 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-01, The White House. Now, you can go get it at robertjdarling.com if you'd like a signed copy or a non-signed book on Amazon. And I highly recommend reading this and listening to what Bob has to say. Now, Bob, thank you so much for being here. Nick, what an honor for me to be with you today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And with that, I'm just going to shut up because you've <laughs> got the story that that honestly is beyond riveting. So please, please take us through the events of 9-11 as you know it. Well, sure, sure, Nick. And for the sake of your audience, I'll, I'll give them a little backstory. Uh, I, I joined the Marine Corps in 1987, and I flew attack helicopters most of my career. But I had the pleasure of, in 1998 of being selected to fly with President Bill Clinton with Marine Helicopter Squadron 1. The acronym is HMX-1. That's the squadron designator. And we would support the president worldwide in helicopter operations. It's that shiny green and white helicopter that you see take off and land in the White House lawn. Well, soon after that, the Bush administration was coming in in the election of 2000, and I was asked to stop flying and go up and be a staff officer in the White House military office, Airlift Operations Department. And that's the department that's responsible for moving all the helicopters, the snipers, the doctors, phones, limousines, everything you can imagine the president would need the moment he gets off Air Force One anywhere in the world. And that was our job then to pre-position all that year. All right, so now I'm working in airlift operations. It's September 11, 2001. Now our president, President Bush was in Sarasota, Florida. He's uh, promoting his academic agenda at the Emma E. Booker Elementary School. I was the airlift operations officer in charge of that logistics package. So I moved everything. I had everything coordinated and moved down to Sarasota. We're monitoring the president's schedule. And the minute he was going to be wheels up airborne on Air Force One, it was scheduled to be around 1 p.m. that afternoon, we would have the Air Force go in. We would clean up all that equipment and bring it back to Joint Base Andrews, 15 miles to the east of Washington, D.C. When everything changed, as you can imagine. It's 846 in the morning when someone came running into airlift operations. We're in the Eisenhower building. We're adjacent to the West Wing. We're monitoring the president's event. And they said, hey, sir, quick, turn on CNN. Apparently a small aircraft struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center complex. Like everybody else around the world, we went to the TV sets, we, we turned it on, and we're looking at the hole in the North Tower. And the first thing that came out of our mouth was why would a pilot careen into a 110-story landmark 
in a city of 6 million, when he literally has the East River on one side and the Hudson River on the other side, most of us pilots could glide our airplane and reach LaGuardia Airport. It's just that close. Mm. So what could this be about? And by the way, that's a pretty big hole for assessment. So now information is piling into airlift operations. American Airlines Flight 11. That plane departed out of Boston Logan Airport. It was on its way out to Los Angeles, California, LAX. It went lost communications over Albany, New York, down the Hudson River, and into the North Tower, like I said, at, at 846. People are scurrying about, Nick, as you can imagine. TVs are going on. That's a big hole for a Cessna. Phone calls are ringing. You know, this potentially is a, not a Cessna, but an airline. When all of a sudden at 9.03, just 15 short minutes later, we all watched United Airlines Flight 175 come into view. I remember looking up at the TV set, yelling, what is this moron doing? Trying to get a good look at the hole in the North Tower before he circles to land at LaGuardia. And we all watched it careen into the South Tower. Like I said, it looked, looked like full power to us. Right. It, it, it just, it, and it's amazing to me that even your position and what you're doing, you're watching CNN to see this, that, that you're not getting this before we are. You you're know? right. There's no secret database coming in with advanced information. We're all watching it live worldwide. We're watching right. it live. Right. There's a billion people on TV right now watching the South Tower get struck by United Airlines Flight 175. Just then, my boss at the time, who was an Air Force full bird colonel, he came running into airlift operations, the ops section of uh, our operations office, and said, everybody stop what you're doing. Eyeballs on me. We have a full-blown terrorist event unfolding right before our eyes in the city of New York. Stand by for a lot of White House designated missions. And you'll say, hey, what does that mean? But I want your, your audience to know that whenever we have a national tragedy, whether it be Katrina or a terrorist attack or some type of explosion, uh, you know, um, some, some horrible thing that happens, mm -hmm. every government agency has got one of two things. They either have expertise or they have the resources that we need to help our the American public recover. And as a result of that, they all need to be airlifted. Every government agency has got some role to play. doesn't matter whether you're Interior, Treasury, or DOD, Department of Defense. You all want to get to the site of the tragedy because you have some value that you need to add to save lives. But the Department of Defense doesn't consider one government agency more important than the other. So you'll get put into a queue. And when a plane becomes available, you and your team will get airlifted to where this national tragedy occurred. But if you call the White House and you go, hey, boss, this is the Federal Emergency Management Agency. This is FEMA. I have 75 doctors, all the medicines I can carry. I really need to be on the ground up there in the city of New York. And the White House, you're talking about chief of staff or above, says go. Then you become what we call a one alpha one. We will push baby food out of the back of the next available heavy lift Air Force aircraft to get you and your organization where the White House wants you to be. So now in airlift operations, the phones are ringing off the hook. Every government agency is requesting one Alpha One. We're passing it up to leadership. It's coming back approved. And now we're on the phone to the Pentagon asking them to divert every Air Force heavy lift asset out of the sky 
and get it on the ground at Joint Base Andrews because there's going to be a wave of people and resources coming across Washington, D.C. The White House, the president wants everything we got to New York City. Right. So listen, within the next 30 minutes, as we're answering the phones, all of a sudden, an airliner overflew the White House. If you're not a Marine One pilot, nobody overflies the White House. It's prohibited airspace. And this jet, Nick, was so large and so loud, we all froze right there in our tracks. Somebody ran to the window and goes, holy mackerel, big white jet, hard left-hand turn, heading west, breaking news, fire and explosion over at the Pentagon. We don't have an air attack on New York City. We now have an air attack in the northeast quadrant of the United States. Right. We got the Pentagon burning. We got two towers burning. And for the second time in American history, all the loudspeakers blared to life, evacuate the White House, evacuate the White House. The, sec right. the first time that happened during the War of 1812, it was 1814, when the British were burning down Washington, D.C., and Dolly Madison was running out the back door of the White House with a print of George Washington. Here we are 187 years later. We're evacuating our White House for the second time in history. Wow. Wow. It was and just an unbelievable moment. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at it from the perspective of history, I mean, how many times just given who we are and how we're geographically located to the rest of the world, you just don't expect attacks on U.S. soil. Uh, you know, now I'm I'm curious to know in terms of the the priority where, as you mentioned, everybody from you know interior to the federal dog catching agency has some kind of stake in this, and and the priority has that process changed after 9/11? You know, meaning were lessons learned by virtue of that, or do you still have a whole bunch of agencies saying, hey, I've got to be vetted through the White House, and the White House is directing this kind of traffic? Yeah, it's it's really not it has not changed um, since then. Yeah. You do need White House authority to use all those national level assets. We only have so many C-17, C-5s, 141s. And if you're going to start uh, responding to a national tragedy, a terrorist attack, it all gets coordinated through our national command authority in conjunction with White House decision makers. Okay. Okay. Well, please, please continue. Yeah, this is. Yeah, so that didn't change. So like I said, we're, we're evacuated. My boss said, that's it. Everybody lock up your, your safe, your classified information. We're yeah. going to go to the alternate site. We have to leave. And I remember saying, Colonel, I can't leave. I'm responsible this week for the present, the logistics of the president. Wherever they're going to take him today, he needs snipers, doctors, helicopters, phones, limousines. Right. He needs the package. He said, you can't stay here. Go across the street, go underground, go into the bunker complex called the President's Emergency Operations Center. It was a nuclear-hardened facility built back in the 60s as a safe place for us to take the president and first family in times of national emergency. Hmm. Nick, you'll find this interesting, but 95% of the staffers that worked in the White House didn't even know it existed. They never have a reason to be there. It's yeah. manned and operated by the White House military office. We keep it operational. We use it for military planning purposes, I think. Hmm. And now it's going to become the main hub of operations. So literally, I crossed the street. I showed my credentials. Secret Service let me in. I can't tell you how deep it is, how thick the walls are, how to get there. I'm allowed to tell you the bunker exists. And I showed my credentials. I picked up the phone. You know, a, a bank vault on steroids opens and closes. And as you can imagine, you're in an underground operation center right. right by the White House military office. 
Wow. And this is and this is only seven minutes, Nick, after the White House was ordered evacuated. This is how fast things are happening. Right. It's and the, and and the complex is big enough to literally run the entire country from well, yeah. from there. Yeah, it's not gigantic, but it's not little either. And it can definitely house the president and his cabinet, you know, for those critical decisions that have to be made. Wow. Okay. And so when you walk into this, you're seeing military members doing their job, right? The people who are, are stationed there, man there, right. answering the phones, taking notes, they're on the computers, they're doing what they're trained to do. Right. And what they're trained to do, and all of us are trained to do, is get information, situational awareness, and create options for the president, options for leadership. And that's exactly what was going on. The first person I see, Nick, is Vice President Cheney's military aide. He's an Air Force major. He was a colleague of mine. And I remember running up to him and saying, hey, Tom, I'm here to do logistics for the president. Whoever they're going to take him today, he's going to need the package. And he turned to me right away and said, Bob, I need you to forget logistics just for a second. I need help. Answer the phones. They're ringing off the hook. And as you look around this room and everybody's got two phones and they're doing their thing, yeah. I saw an empty desk, an empty cubicle. And I just ran over and I dropped my planning kit and had to answer my first phone call that day at 9.53. And who was it? Okay, there you go. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> and it was a direct line to the upstairs West Wing situation room. The situation room is a secure communication hub. It's where all information will come in. It gets kind of divided up, level of importance, who needs this information. It's got to go to the president. It goes there first before it gets pushed up to the president. Hmm. The situation room is now calling into the bunker complex seven or eight minutes after the White House was ordered evacuated, my first phone call of the day. The gentleman said, Major, we have another hijacked aircraft. It's 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, inbound Washington, DC. So right away, I was like, whoa, you're gonna have to hold on. And I covered receiver that I turned to my right to announce it to the military aide, to my friend, Tom, mm -hmm. the military aide. And who's standing right next to me but Vice President Cheney himself, inches away. Right behind him was his wife, Lynn, Dr. Rice, our national security advisor, her deputy, Stephen Hadley, and Norman Mineta, our secretary of transportation. Everyone who was upstairs in the West Wing was now evacuated into the bunker, come over to my console to hear about this new hijacked aircraft. So as you can wow. imagine, Nick, I put my heels together. I bellowed out, Mr. Vice President, sir, we have another aircraft, hijacked aircraft. It's coming at us. Right away, he turned away from me, Nick. And up on the wall down there are these three black boxes. They're really just phones. They're speaker boxes, landlines. And the right. Situation Room can patch him through to talk to whoever he needs to talk to. And the first person he asked for was get me the Herndon, Virginia Command Center for the FAA. The supervisor's name was Rick. He came right up on the network and he goes, Rick, it's the vice president. I was just told we have another hijacked aircraft coming at us. Can you confirm that for me? Nice. Mr. Vice President, that aircraft is not talking to our air traffic controllers. It's not uh, the transponder has been in op. It's not giving us information like altitude, direction, right. airspeed. It's way off course. Mr. Vice President, that's a hijacked aircraft. He then turns to the second speaker box and he goes, hey, Don, Donald Rumsfeld, are you up? He's looking for the other member of our national command authority. You know, we take orders from the president and the secretary of defense. They make up what we call our national command authority. 
The president's trying to get airborne in Sarasota, Florida, and the Secretary of Defense, as a result of the impact of Flight 77 on the Pentagon, is now lost in the parking lot over at the Pentagon among thousands. And there's no one at the helm to tell our pilots what the rules of engagement are to defend America. Oh we were literally, we had nobody to give our fighters orders. And just wow. then Vice President Cheney talking to a one-star general over in the National Military Command Center at the Pentagon, almost really inserted himself as a Secretary of Defense, if you will. You know, yeah. remember he used to be the Secretary of Defense for the first president. Bush. Right, right, so right. He, pretty much fell back on his old job and ordered this, this one-star general to get him two F-15 fighter aircraft, two F-15s out of Otis Air National Guard base up in Cape Cod, let him know when they're airborne and stand by to shoot this aircraft down. So you, you can imagine that those orders went to the Pentagon. The Pentagon then called Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, home of NORAD, the North American Aero Defense Command. They call over to the Northeast Air Defense Sector, and they scrambled two F-15s that now reported in to be supersonic over Long Island, New York, closing in on United Flight 93. And they wanted to be confirmed weapons free to engage. And without hesitation, Vice President Cheney said, you are weapons free. Shoot that aircraft down. Wow. Now, now okay, so that actually opens up a lot of questions in, in the sense of, I mean, so most of the audience is going to know what happened to United Flight 93. I mean, it's that's pretty common knowledge at this point. Um, do you, in your opinion, though, think that just given the logistics of this and Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense was not available, the president was not available, do you think Dick Cheney did exactly what he should have? Did he, do you think he overstepped that that bounds then? In yeah, that, I'm asking objectively. It's not political. I just want to know from a logistics standpoint at that level of military readiness, you know, was that the right call, do you think, in that in that moment? You know, Nick, I, I love the question. It's an appropriate question. It's an important question because at the time, if you go by protocol, it's it's not it's it's an improper order. We don't take orders from the vice president, right? The right. whole way our system is designed is we have the president, the secretary of defense. If something happens to our president, if he's killed, incapacitated, or unwilling to fulfill his duties as commander in chief, right? We go to Congress. They invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, and we transfer powers from the president to the vice president. Right. That's how it right. works. But we were attacked on our soil. We haven't been attacked on our soil since, you know, Pearl Harbor. And that was 3,000 miles off our coast in, in Hawaii. Right. This is right here in our largest city, you know, in, in America. And we needed, we were caught flat-footed and we needed to do something. And Vice President Cheney had the courage to stand up and get our military moving forward. So do I think he did the right thing? You bet. I'd follow him up the highest hill for making, having the courage to make that decision. Now, after that decision was made, the fighters, everybody knows what happened. The fighters were in pursuit. They closed in at, at speeds in excess of 1,200 miles an hour, weapons free to engage. But it was the heroic passengers that ultimately that fought back and, and, and kept those terrorists from reaching their target in Washington, D.C. You know, the Tom Burnett's of the world, the Todd Beamers. Ordinary Americans did extraordinary things to, to fight back and defend themselves. And ultimately, that plane crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Right. Our fighters never engaged. 
But had they engaged, we would have said, wow, the system broke down. It was not the military type protocol, but our country had three planes and three targets and we needed a leader to step up to get us moving forward. Mm -hmm. And we found that leader in Vice President Cheney. Right, right. Well, and in the moment, you know, if it seems like, for for lack of a better term, the other leadership was incapacitated in some way. If somebody's stuck in a parking lot and you can't get access to them and the president is in the process of obviously being evacuated and moved securely, you know, maybe that wasn't an option either. But I, I just I find it interesting. These just just the nuts and bolts of this. Like I said, you know, at the preamble, you know, to my audience here, you have a perspective that none of us have. And, and it's just fascinating to go through the logistics of this. So so obviously you've got United Flight 93 that that went down, as you mentioned, in Shanksville and all of that. And, and so then what happened? Yeah, so, and I wish I could tell you that was the end, but that was just the beginning of the day. So yeah. right after that happened, we had the first conversation between the president on board Air Force One is now talking to the vice president inside the bunker complex. They discussed the whole Flight 93 and we're going to look into it. We don't know why it went down. Our fighters didn't engage. We're going to get more information. You know, God bless those poor people, you know, that kind of stuff. So they had a, they had that kind of private conversation. And I turn around and all of a sudden CNN is reporting that, in fact, the South Tower of the World Trade Center had just collapsed. This is a moment, Nick, that I'll never forget standing in that room. Now, you got to realize there's only 20 people in the room and probably 14 are military members that work there. And the, and the rest are, are senior level staffers or the folks I, I told you, Dr. Rice and her team and Norman Mineta. And I'll never forget, but what they saw on TV was not what they were able to mentally comprehend. Even though we saw the tower collapse, they were telling the vice president, that's not true. There's no way a 110-story building is in, on the ground in a city of 6 million. We probably mm -hmm. lost the first 20, 30 floors, you know, the antenna broke off type thing, but they could not come to grips with what we were seeing on TV. It was literally Vice President Cheney turned around and looked at all of them and said, I need everybody to settle down. Does anyone know how many people work there? And literally he flipped over a sheet of paper. Someone yelled out, there's seven buildings in the World Trade Center complex. 50,000 people work in those two buildings alone. And he started to scribble and say, get me the president. President was just on the network. He was off. Let's get him back on. Mm -hmm. And as we were trying to reach the president, the president came back up and the vice president said, Mr. President, sir, we lost the South Tower. It's my best guess. We have 20,000 dead Americans in the city of New York. Sir, and why I got you on the phone, a portion of the Pentagon is now collapsed as a result of the impact of Flight 77. Again, my guess, up to 1,000 people dead over the Pentagon. Wow. Is what we can expect. Yeah. Imagine well, those moments, your commander in chief, 315 million Americans. And now they're telling you, you got 20,000 plus dead Americans. Man, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. And to, to something that you just said too, you mentioned that, you know, prior, prior to, you know, when the, when the first tower was struck before the second tower, you were coordinating with the Pentagon for airlift, airlift operations. After the Pentagon was hit, obviously, the Pentagon had to have been out of commission, at least in some way, shape or form. So that coordination with the Pentagon, did that cease or was the Pentagon or aspects of the Pentagon hardened enough that you could continue coordinating as they were doing, you know, emergency operations to rescue 
survivors from the side of the Pentagon that was hit. Yeah, the west side of the Pentagon was hit and, and taken out and on fire. And, and thank God there wasn't a lot of people there. They were just finishing reconstruction of that area. We were in direct communication with the National Military Command Center, the war room of the Pentagon, mm -hmm. which is deep and it's hardened and it, it was away from the impact site. So mm -hmm. we were able to continue our emergency communications with them. Okay, so they were they were on it the entire time. Yes. Yeah. And the other side of it, too, is you mentioned the psychology of of seeing something like that, where it was just a man because I watched it live. Right. Everybody took the day off, you know, that day. Like nobody went anywhere. Like I, I had meetings scheduled for the Sears Tower in Chicago, as I mentioned, and then and I didn't go. And I'm, we're all watching just horrified on on television as these towers drop. And it was a surreal moment. But I'm just wondering, in, in your opinion there, um, you know, because there's been obviously a lot of conspiracies about that and all of that. Um, do you think that just that disbelief has really has really fueled that over the time? One of the things we've talked about on the radio quite a bit is the disinformation that we are just seeing left and right, you know, in the world. And I'm just curious to get your perspective on that. Yeah, and I think that's right. Everybody, uh, they try to come to grips in their own way. And some people then inject what they think happened and they overlay that with what reality of, of what happened. And, you know, for all the conspiracy theorists out there, I get it. But I would ask you to ask them, you know, to to uh, realize that we can't keep an email secret in this country. If there's <laughs> something going on, it comes right. out, it leaks out. There's, uh, right. you know, look at all the the, the legal cases and, and somebody leaks, you know, something. Donald Trump's tax returns, they're, they're leaked. Everything right. gets, gets leaked. Right. You know how many people it would take? to sabotage a building hundreds of thousands yeah and yeah. There's, there's just no way it's just yeah. it's not plausible it's, it's right. just unfortunately reality is it was taken out by by killers by terrorists right right no i i would agree and there was actual an actual calculation of how many people would need to be involved to fake the moon landing and it was something like 300,000 people just given the entire logistics of the construction, everything. So, so yeah. And, and again, that's something that we try to cut through here, you know, in terms of the noise and all of that, and just really stick to, you know, the evidence that we have. So, so please continue, but you know, it just, it's, it's an interesting tangent, I think. Yeah. And I also want to share with your listeners that, you know, you think because you're in the white house bubble, that there's, there's all there's information coming in. It's perfect information. Mm -hmm. And I, what I was struck by, was how normal they all were, how horrified they all were, how scared, yeah, they, how professional they how they wanted to do their job and get the information right. And they were just like you and I, Nick, if we were faced with some type of chaos or tragedy or crisis, just yeah. trying to get information to, to see what decisions need to be requested to be made or, right. or they can make. There was there's nothing magical about this White House staff or just regular people. Trying right. To do right. You know, and you may have kids at the local school and now you're, you know, I mean, there's so many things that are going to go through your mind in an, in an event like this. But basically, it's just keeping your blank together, <laughs> you know, and and right. getting through the day because there's bigger fish to fry right now, you know, and, and you've yeah. got a national emergency going on. But, and, talk, but, and talk about the chaos. You asked the, the chaos right after that. We. um we got a report that I think your your listeners are going to find this fascinating too. We got a report. There's another aircraft. This aircraft is eight miles out, low and fast, heading for the White House. When you don't know what it is or who it is, you call it a bogey aircraft. If it if it's determined to be a bad guy, you know, um, you know, a foreign military or something, or mm -hmm. a terrorist aircraft, it be, it gets elevated to be a bandit. 
If he's a friendly, he's a friendly. So we have those three categories, friendly, bogey, or bandit. We didn't know what this aircraft was, so we were calling it a bogey. Secret Service is now tracking this aircraft at eight miles out. They call into the bunker. I turn, reported to Vice President Cheney. We got a bogey seven miles out, inbound, low and fast to the White House. He's back on the speaker boxes, talking to Donald Rumsfeld, our Secretary of Defense, mm -hmm. reporting six miles out, we have another one coming at us. And he's looking for fighter aircraft. Do we have a fighter combat air patrol cap, fighter cap over Washington, D.C.? And he's going, we're checking. In the, in the meantime, Secret Service and I are going five, four. And he goes, uh, Vice President Cheney, back to Secretary Rumsfeld, I'll authorize an over-the-horizon shot. No visual confirmation required. You don't need to see this bad guy. Mm -hmm. If you can lock onto this aircraft with a radar-guided missile 40 miles away over Baltimore, shoot him. Shoot him. And next thing you know, we heard three miles, two miles. Vice President Cheney turned to me and goes, Major, stop counting. If the Secret Service can't deal with it on the roof, everybody stand by for impact. And I put my hands in the console in front of me going, the world's greatest military superpower doesn't have a fighter aircraft over Washington. We're going to take a body blow right oh here God. at the White House. And there's thousands of people being pushed to the south and cleared to the north outside. Right. And all of a sudden, all the satellite radios blared to life. That's not a bogey. That's an Army medevac helicopter that took off out of Fort Belvoir, 10 miles to our south, carrying six Army doctors trying to make it to the Pentagon to save lives. But when they called Reagan National Tower for permission to, air, to enter the airspace, Reagan National Tower had evacuated as a result of the flyover of Flight 77. No one called them back, and they thought they could go low and fast, and nobody would see them. And we picked them up on our sensors, and we were trying to kill them. We just didn't have a missile. Wow. I mean, you know, and that's – it's those kinds of things, I think, just in the 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 – fog of war right the chaos of a of a moment where you have to make decisions that literally i mean the last thing you want to do is kill your fellow you know personnel right your your fellow right. soldiers and and it's absolutely absolutely crazy um you know for that but it's it's such it's such a riveting story um that you had and like i said i i and and for my audience i saw you live you know, with, with your slides and everything else, you know, something you can't see or, or rather hear on the radio, um, you know, and, and, and it was just, it was just riveting. And so, you know, thank you for being here and, and telling that story. Cause I think it's a perspective that we don't see. And I wanted to also ask, um, you know, just in the realm of politics and, and my listeners know that this, we're very apolitical here, you know, we want to hear all sides and just talk about this, but people tend to let politics jade their perceptions you know, of actions and inactions of a presidential administration. We see how trust is broken down in you know, the United States here. We have two warring political parties, et cetera, et cetera. But we want to cut through that because there are going to be people out there that remember, you know, that day as I remembered and the aftermath of all of that. Um, but as basically they're looking back on the George, the George W. Bush administration, they're going to look back. Some will be fond of it. Some will not, et cetera, et cetera. So from an apolitical perspective, how would you grade the administration's response to basically, uh, to specifically an attack like this, the events of the day, you were there basically from beginning to end, and what do you think they could have improved on? What, in hindsight, like 
for example, don't shoot down six doctors in a, in a military helicopter, you know, and for the record, I'm not talking about the aftermath of this Afghanistan or Iraq. I'm talking about specifically the events of 9-11. Like if you had to grade this objectively, you know, what did you guys get right? What what really went wrong? Or, oh, we really need to improve this. God forbid we have another one of these things happen. You know, Nick, the I wish I could underscore your listeners. I would highlight it, underscore, bold, put it in parentheses, what you're just saying right now. It was not a good day for the U.S. military. Despite mm -hmm. this massive national military command and control structure that we all have to be outward looking against our adversaries around the world. We were ill-equipped to deal with threats within our border. On top of that, we have a system called our National Command Authority, where these two individuals, our president and our SecDef, Secretary of Defense, need to be in touch with each other whenever the president needs to you know, talk to him. It's got to be a seamless connection. Right. On 9-11, the decision of the Secretary of Defense to go out and save lives at the Pentagon is a noble one, an honorable one. The building was attacked. It was on fire. He's got people that he may even know who are now killed or injured. His appointed place of duty, however, was to be in the National Military Command Center, not in the parking lot of the Pentagon. Right. Our president is doing his political agenda, his act, you know, his his executive agenda down there, he's got the right to be in a classroom or be on Air Force One. We support him. We serve it at the pleasure of his administration. But for that decision not to be in the National Military Command Center, I give the U.S. military response overall an F. It was a breakdown of the complete protocols that we trained to, we adhere to, and we all swear we're, we're going we're gonna to do our best to, to do that. But I get it. He's a human being as well, and he went out to save lives. But he broke down the system. We were saved on 9-11, not by the U.S. military. We were saved by the American public. Ordinary people who went back into towers to save the life of complete strangers, whether it's in New York, those shopkeepers that opened their stores to pull strangers in to feed them mm -hmm. and to protect them from falling debris, ferry boat captains who summoned every civilian boat in the, on the East River, the Hudson River, to race to Lower Manhattan to evacuate complete strangers, people in the Pentagon, people opening up their homes. You right. can see even all the diverted flights around the world went, landed at all these civilian airports, and people were taking strangers into their houses to house them and, and feed them and, and take care of them. It was a glorious day for humanity. It was a terrible day. Uh, you know, for our response. But we quickly got back on our feet, thanks to leaders like Vice President Cheney and others, mm -hmm. and we got ourselves moving forward. And we we've been defending democracy now for 22 years against threats. You know more about these threats than, than, than most. We're constantly under a barrage of threats. And I take my hat off to the military as a result of that response to law enforcement, first responders, EMS, people like you who dedicate themselves to the protection of our networks and you know our critical infrastructure. But at that moment, it was not a great moment for the US military, but it was a proud moment to be called an American. Yeah, and you know, that's a really interesting perspective in the not not necessarily the grade on the military and you obviously want your military, especially the most well-equipped and well-trained military on the planet, uh, you know, to 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 always get an A. You know, but but it's it's I think it's important to have that objective analysis, you know, and after any after action report should should really be the honest truth of what went wrong and what went right. You know, but one of the things that I think is oftentimes overlooked that you just mentioned is a 
is absolutely correct is the human side of that is that at the end of the day, we're helping each other, you know, and if I've got a storefront and you can come in and not get hit by falling debris, then please come on it, you know, and those are the kinds of things I think are, are, are lost, especially in a politically divided time, how, how well, you know, politics set aside, we're at the end of the day, just wanting to live our lives. We want to be safe, right? We want to have peace. And, you know, one of the other reasons why I was really interested in having you, you know, on my radio show, and, and, and again, it's, it's, I just found you so riveting. But recently, you know, we saw the events of 7 October last year, you know, with the Hamas attack on, um, you know, on Israel. And by virtue of that, uh, there was a for a brief period of time on TikTok, uh, Osama bin Laden, who, as we know, mastermind of 9-11, basically, he wrote an open letter to the world, you know, prior to his death. And that was being read in the aftermath of that Hamas attack. Uh, you know, a couple months ago, and there was essentially a rehab or an attempt to essentially rehab part of his reputation based on based on that. Now, oftentimes, and, and or I should say, on TikTok, you know, those that are rehabbing are the generation that were too young to remember this. They didn't go through 9-11 with us or or they weren't even born. Right. And so by virtue of that, given your involvement in the national response to 9-11 itself, given this intimate knowledge that you have that the, the rest of the rest of us simply don't. And, and also the information that you were privy to, like, what would you tell a group of young people that, you know, would be subjected to say, look at the TikToks of the world and say, oh, yeah, maybe there is some good things Osama bin Laden did, you know, or, or having, you know, uh, some other opinion. What, what would you tell you know, the young, my younger audience, if you will, in, in, in that vein. Yeah. And, and let me be very clear to the, to the young audience um, right there. Uh, Osama bin Laden was a killer. He was a terrorist. He was a horrible person. He was hell bent on mass destruction and his ideal radical ideology. He hijacked a religion and he hijacked a group of individuals that followed him whose only mission was to try to wreak havoc and terror around the world. There's not a single fabric of his being that I would ever recommend to anybody as being anything but negative. He's not a positive role model. And the reason why they're even looking at his open letter is because one of the things we've lost in our country is a sense of national pride. Uh, you know, our, our, our young kids, you're smarter than, they're, they're way smarter than you and I will be. They're brilliant. They've had it all. They got the best education and the best tools and toys and everything you can imagine, but they've never suffered. And they don't have the same gratitude that we inherited from our, the greatest generation who fought in World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam. You know, we got a sense in our history of how lucky we are to be democratic and free and how fragile that is. And we can lose it. They've never had the fear of losing it. So now they're looking out at the global landscape and they're finding everything that's wrong with the United States. And, and there are things you can list that are wrong. Our policies aren't right. We're heavy handed. We're very capitalistic. It's all about the money sometimes. And we're not always fair, but we're free and we're, we're prosperous and we're generous and we care about the overall safety and humanity of the world we are the greatest nation on earth and we cannot give airtime to uh, a low bit terrorist who's, whose only mission that day was to kill people and try to equate that in any manner, way, shape or form. There's just no comparison where I'm from. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and you're not getting a disagreement with me here <laughs> on that. And I'm sure my older audience having, you know, been through that. And again, we all know exactly what we were doing that day. You know, it, it's, it's one of those things that, that you unfortunately have to experience to really understand that, that level of gratitude, I think. And that's, it's just an unfortunate reality of, of, you know, who we are. And, and I'm, while I hope the next generation or the younger generation does not have to experience tragedy, I think there is there is the so that is the silver lining in something like that. So with that, yeah. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, U.S. Marine Corps retired. Thank you so much for for being on my show. And once again, his book, and I highly recommend going to get it off his website, robertjdarling.com is 24 hours inside the president's bunker, 91101, the White House. And and if you like this interview as much as I did, it's gonna be a riveting read. So make sure you go get that. And with that, uh, if if uh, Bob, if anybody wants to contact you for speaking, and he's a fantastic speaker, and, and as somebody who travels the world speaking, I don't say that lightly, um, or or want just to get a hold of you, how, how can they reach you? Well, thanks, Nick, for all that. And what a pleasure it was to be with you today. My website is robertjdarling.com, robert, the letter J, darling.com, where you can email me at robertjdarling at gmail.com. And I hope to hear from all your listeners. Thanks, Nick. Wonderful. Once again, Bob, thank you so much for being there. And this has been your deep dive for the week. And I hope you are as rivered as I was. Take care. <laughs>